This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of England from the Accession of James the Second by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Book One, Chapter Four, Part Six. This may be fixed upon as the moment at which the enthusiasm of the Tory party reached the zenith. Ever since the accession of the new king, addresses had been pouring in which expressed profound veneration for his person and office, and bitter detestation of the vanquished Whigs. The magistrates of Middlesex thanked God for having confounded the designs of these regicides and exclusionists, who, not content with having murdered one blessed monarch, were bent on destroying the foundations of monarchy. The city of Gloucester execrated the bloodthirsty villains who had tried to deprive his majesty of his just inheritance. The burgesses of Wigan assured their sovereign that they would defend him against all plotting Achitophels and rebellious Absaloms. The grand jury of Suffolk expressed a hope that the Parliament would proscribe all the exclusionists. Many corporations pledged themselves never to return to the House of Commons any person who had voted for taking away the birthright of James. Even the capital was profoundly obsequious. The lawyers and the traders vied with each other in civility. Inns of court and inns of chancery sent up fervent professions of attachment and submission. All the great commercial societies, the East India Company, the African Company, the Turkey Company, the Muscovy Company, the Hudson's Bay Company, the Maryland Merchants, the Jamaica Merchants, the Merchant Adventurers, declared that they most cheerfully complied with the royal edict, which required them still to pay custom. Bristol, the second city of the island, echoed the voice of London, but nowhere was the spirit of loyalty stronger than in the two universities. Oxford declared that she would never swerve from those religious principles which bound her to obey the king without any restrictions or limitations. Cambridge condemned in severe terms the violence and treachery of those turbulent men who had maliciously endeavoured to turn the stream of succession out of the ancient channel. Such addresses as these filled during a considerable time every number of the London Gazette, but it was not only by addressing that the Tories showed their zeal, the writs for the new Parliament had gone forth, and the country was agitated by the tumult of a general election. No election had ever taken place under circumstances so favourable to the court. Hundreds of thousands, whom the Popish plot had scared into Whiggism, had been scared back by the Rye House plot into Toryism. In the counties, the government could depend on an overwhelming majority of the gentlemen of three hundred a year and upwards, and on the clergy almost to a man. Those boroughs, which had once been the citadels of Whiggism, had recently been deprived of their charters by legal sentence, or had prevented the sentence by voluntary surrender. They had now been reconstituted in such a manner that they were certain to return members devoted to the crown. Where the townsmen could not be trusted, the freedom had been bestowed on the neighbouring squires. In some of the small western corporations, the constituent bodies were in great part composed of captains and lieutenants of the guards. The returning officers were almost everywhere 
in the interest of the court. In every shire, the Lord Lieutenant and his deputies formed a powerful, active, and vigilant committee for the purpose of cajoling and intimidating the freeholders. The people were solemnly warned, the people were solemnly warned from thousands of pulpits not to vote for any Whig candidate, as they should answer it to him who had ordained the powers that be, and who had pronounced rebellion a sin not less deadly than witchcraft. All these advantages the predominant party, not only used to the utmost, but abused in so shameless a manner that grave and reflecting men, who had been true to the monarchy in peril, and who bore no love to republicans and schismatics, stood aghast, and augured from such beginnings the approach of evil times. Yet the Whigs, though suffering the just punishment of their errors, though defeated, disheartened, and disorganized, did not yield without an effort. They were still numerous among the traders and artisans of the town, and among the yeomanry and peasantry of the open country. In some districts, in Dorsetshire, for example, and in Somersetshire, they were the great majority of the population. In the remodelled boroughs they could do nothing, but in every county where they had a chance they struggled desperately. In Bedfordshire, which had lately been represented by the virtuous and unfortunate Russell, they were victorious on the show of hands, but were beaten at the poll. In Essex they polled 1,300 votes to 1,800. At the election for Northamptonshire, the common people were so violent in their hostility to the court candidate that a body of troops was drawn out in the marketplace of the county town and was ordered to load with ball. The history of the contest for Buckinghamshire is still more remarkable. The Whig candidate, Thomas Wharton, eldest son of Philip Lord Wharton, was a man distinguished alike by dexterity and by audacity, and destined to play a conspicuous though not always respectable, part in the politics of several reigns. He had been one of those members of the House of Commons who had carried up the exclusion bill to the bar of the Lords. The court was therefore bent on throwing him out, by fair or foul means. The Lord Chief Justice Jeffreys himself came down into Buckinghamshire for the purpose of assisting a gentleman named Hackett, who stood on the high Tory interest. A stratagem was devised, which, it was thought, could not fail of success. It was given out that the polling would take place at Aylesbury, and Wharton, whose skill in all the arts of electioneering was unrivalled, made his arrangements on that supposition. At a moment's warning, the sheriff adjourned the poll to Newport Pagnell. Wharton and his friends hurried thither, and found that Hackett, who was in the secret, had already secured every inn and lodging. The Whig freeholders were compelled to tie their horses to the hedges, and to sleep under the open sky in the meadows which surround the little town. It was with the greatest difficulty that refreshments could be procured at short notice for so large a number of men and beasts. Though Wharton, who was utterly regardless of money, when his ambition and party spirit were roused, dispersed fifteen hundred pounds in one day, an immense outlay for those times. Injustice seems, however, to have animated the courage of the stout-hearted yeoman of Buckinghamshire, the son of the constituents of John Hamden. Not only was Wharton at the head of the poll, but he was able to spare his second votes to a man of moderate opinions, 
and to throw out the chief justice's candidate. In Cheshire, the contest lasted six days. The Whigs polled about 1,700 votes, the Tories about 2,000. The common people were vehement on the Whig side, raised the cry of down with the bishops, insulted the clergy in the streets of Chester, knocked down one gentleman of the Tory party, broke the windows and beat the constables. The militia was called out to quell the riot and was kept assembled in order to protect the festivities of the conquerors. When the poll closed, a salute to five great guns from the castle proclaimed the triumph of the church and the crown to the surrounding country. The bells rang. The newly elected members went in state to the city cross, accompanied by a band of music and by a long train of knights and squires. The procession, as it marched, sang Joy to Great Caesar, a loyal ode, which had lately been written by Durfey, and which, though like all Durfey's writings, utterly contemptible, was at that time almost as popular as Lillibulero became a few years later. Round the cross the train bands were drawn up in order, a bonfire was lighted, the exclusion bill was burned, and the health of King James was drunk with loud acclamations. The following day was Sunday. In the morning, the militia lined the streets leading to the cathedral. The two knights of the shire were escorted with great pomp to their choir by the magistracy of the city, heard the dean preach a sermon, probably on the duty of passive obedience, and were afterwards feasted by the mayor. End of part six.